on. Uh, we're in the middle of it. Uh, while well, we're getting towards the end of this year's celebration. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Hanukkah. Some parts of the Messianic movement uh, struggle sometimes with how to handle Hanukkah because it's not a Leviticus 23 Moedim, right? And that's okay. I mean, it's good to order your life around the Bible and want to examine things. And so today I'd like to talk a little bit about Hanukkah, what it is, and why it's important for everyone. In a nutshell, the easy part is Hanukkah commemorates the liberation of the Jewish people from the Greeks in the 2nd century BCE. But this occurred in the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is a period of time, roughly 500 years, in between the Testaments, right? From about 500 BCE to around the time the, our, uh, the Talmudim began to write um, the New Covenant writings. And so the Old Testament, of course, the Tanakh, consists of Israelite history, really, from the creation through Noah, the patriarchs, uh, uh, judges, kings, right? It keeps a fairly good track um, of Israelite history up until we get to the exiles. So first, exile, of course, is the Assyrians came down from the north and took the northern kingdom away. And then not long after that, the Babylonians came in and exiled the Jewish people to Babylon. And that is, that period of time gets us towards the end of the Tanakh period. That's where all the prophets are warning about that or telling the people they better straighten up or Babylon is going to exile them. And so we get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's towards the very end of the Tanakh or the Old Testament, right before we get to the intertestamental period, right? Because Hanukkah's not in either Old Testament or New Testament. It is in the book of Maccabees. You can get into the weeds there because the Maccabees was included in the Septuagint, which was the Greek scriptures that are original brothers and sisters would have been reading, but for some reason, it didn't make it into the Stern's complete Jewish Bible or most other Protestant Bibles that are out there, be that as it may. Around 538 BCE, Cyrus the Great liberated the Jewish people, allowing them to go back to the Holy Land. And so that gets us pretty much to the book of Ezra. I'd like to start there this morning, actually talking about Hanukkah in a roundabout way. Um, Ezra, the book of Ezra is on page 1117. If you are using um, the complete Jewish Bible, one of the Pew Bibles, or if you have another version of scripture, it's certainly gonna be on a different page than that. The book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Koresh, king of Persia, um, in order for the word of Adonai prophesied by Yirmiyahu to be fulfilled, 
Adonai stirred up the spirit of Koresh, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his whole kingdom, which he had also put in writing, and it's as follows. Here's what Koresh, king of Persia, says. Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Yerushalayim in Yehuda. Whoever, is, whoever there is among you of all his people, that's the Israelites, may his God be with him. He may go up to Yerushalayim in Yehuda and build the house of Adonai, the God of Israel, the God who is in Yerushalayim. Let every survivor, no matter where he lives, be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, goods, and animals, in addition to the voluntary offering for the house of God in Yerushalayim. Now, this is the second temple that they're talking about building. Second temple times, the second temple. This is the temple that our Rabbi Yeshua, Yeshua would one day walk in. And, of course, this um, return from exile is promised by the prophets. And Adonai, we see here, is beginning to bring his people home. And he wants his house built, the temple built. So turn over a couple pages to chapter 3. Uh, we'll continue here. Chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month arrived, after the people of Israel had resettled in the towns, the people gathered with one accord in Yerushalayim. Then Yeshua, the son of Yatzadak, that would be Joshua in English Bibles, um, with his fellow Kohanim, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, with his kinsmen, organized the rebuilding of the altar of God of Israel so that they could offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the Torah of Moshe, the man of God. They set up the altar on its former places despite feeling threatened by the people of peoples of the surrounding countries. They offered on it burnt offerings to Adonai, the morning and evening burnt offerings. So they've, they've gotten back there. They're beginning to set up not the entire temple or the gates or anything like that, but they got the nuts and bolts of it. To get started, they needed to get the altar going. And so they've gotten back and they've managed to sort of get that much rolling. There's still a lot of work to do, though. Turn forward a couple more pages to chapter 6. Um, we'll start on verse 14. That's at the top of page 1125. Ezra chapter 6. Verse 14, the leaders of the Judeans made good progress with the rebuilding, thanks to the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edil. They kept building until they were finished in keeping with the command of the God of Israel and in accordance with the order of Koresh, Daryavesh, and Atak Shashta, king of Persia. This house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Daryavesh the king. The people of Israel, the Kohanim, the Levi'im, and the other people from exile joyfully dedicated this house of God. And yes, that English word there, dedicated, is Hanukkah. 
because Hanukkah means dedication, so it makes sense you translate that as dedicated. So Hanukkah, in a sense, is certainly in the Bible. I mean, obviously, this isn't the second century Maccabean-led dedication of the temple. But the dedication of the temple is a biblical concept. We just read about it right here. They were commanded to build and dedicate and operate the temple by Adonai. This is the same temple that Yeshua would refer to as his father's house. So Adonai has returned his people back to his land and had them rebuild the holy temple. They're also working on the rest of Jerusalem, of course. And this is a process that's going to take quite a while to keep rebuilding as far as the gates and, the and uh, Jerusalem's walls. There's a whole lot to be done. And as you continue on through the book of Ezra and into Nehemiah, you're going to find that there's a lot of snags along the way. But they get the job done. They get there. And now the people certainly could use a good dose of some Torah teaching, right? So turn forward a few more pages to Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, it's on page 1140. And the Tanakh is all one book. And these Bibles as two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's all one narrative in, uh, in the Tanakh. Nehemiah chapter 8. They're finally uh, going to put the topping on this return from exile. Verse 1. All the people gathered around with one accord in the open space in front of the water gate and asked Ezra, the Torah teacher, to bring the scroll of the Torah of Moshe which Adonai had commanded Moshe. Ezra the Kohen brought the Torah before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and all children old enough to understand. It was the first day of the seventh month. Facing the open space in front of the water gate, he read from it to the men, the women, and the children who can understand from early morning until noon, and all the people listened attentively to the scroll of the Torah. This was the first time the Torah had been publicly read in a very, very, very long time. And the people were so desperate for Torah. If you read a couple more verses, you'll see that they were weeping, they were crying. They were so happy to finally be hearing these words, because those words are powerful. Torah is a powerful thing. And they just returned from exile, and they rebuilt their temple, and now they have their Torah. And it was uh, very overwhelming, I'd have to imagine. And so the Levi'im are trying to calm the people down. Listen, stop crying. This is a joyous time. We should be celebrating here. We'll continue down near the bottom of the page, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' clans of all the people assembled with the Kohenim and the Levi'im before Ezra, the Torah teacher, to study the Torah, to study the words of the Torah. They found written in the Torah that Adonai had ordered through Moshe that the people of Israel were to live in Sukkot during the feast of the seventh month and that they were to announce and pass the word on in all their cities and in Jerusalem. Go out to the mountains and collect branches of Olives, wild olives, myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make a Sukkot as prescribed. So the people 
went out, brought them back, and made Sukkot for themselves, each one, on the roof of his house, or in, in, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God, in the open space by the water gate, and in the open space by the Ephraim gate. They were building little sukkahs everywhere. The entire community of those who had returned from exile made Sukkot and lived in Sukkot, for the people of Israel had not done since the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, Joshua, the son of Nun. So there was very great joy, of course. And they had read, also they read every day from the first day to the last day in the scroll of the Torah of God. And they kept the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the people returned from exile now feels complete. They've built the house of Adonai. They've dedicated it, right? Hanukkah. And uh, the people were hearing the Torah read publicly and following the Torah. And so yeah, this is Adonai once again is faithful to his people, and the path for Messiah Yeshua is preserved. So all is good at this point. It's good to be back home, they're probably thinking. And certainly by the command of the Lord, they built the temple and they dedicated it, and they're back to following Torah. So things seem to be going well for the moment, but a couple hundred years later, things start to go south. <clears throat> Around the year 350-ish, give or take, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. And Alexander the Great and his Greek empire conquered the whole region. Now what made old Alex a little unique was that he pushed Hellenization, and which is a term many of us have heard before, Hellenization, Hellenism is really, if you look it up uh, on Wikipedia, it says Hellenism is the adoption of Greek culture, religion, and language and identity by non-Greeks. And so Hellenization is, uh, that's what Alexander the Great, as he conquered all these little territories, he wanted everyone to kind of be like the Greeks. The Greeks were progressive, right? The Greeks were a little worldly, and they were into sciences and philosophy and and uh, so Alexander the Great thought, you know, if I can send some Greeks out and really uh, try to have an effect on all these different communities, he could, you know, make the, what he thought would be a better world. You have to understand, Alexander the Great was deeply influenced by people like Aristotle. And, and so he was really into trying to change, trying to be progressive, right? Um, and so Hellenism began to creep into Israelite life. There was a lot of Greek influence into the Holy Land. So while Judaism emphasizes things like truth and moral purity, because that's what they learned from Torah, the Greeks, Greek ideals were of outward beauty, philosophy, which not all philosophy is bad. It was, but certainly what they had was not a religious or a philosophy on any level. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, good philosophy needs to exist if for nothing else to combat bad philosophy. So there is good and there's bad, but there's certainly a lot of worldly things that the Greek had their ideals on. And at first, the Greeks were fairly favorable to the Jewish people. Um, even a little later, 200 BC, King Antiochus III he seized power, and he put the Seleucids, Seleucids under control, and he was 
fairly nice to the Jewish people. He wanted to conciliate the new Jewish subjects, so he guaranteed their right to live according to their ancestral customs, to worship at the temple. So at first that wasn't bad, but the good times wouldn't last very long because a short time later, later another Antiochus takes over, Antiochus Epiphanes, and this guy was crazy. He uh, tried to root out individualism and religion and began suppressing Jewish laws. He removed the righteous high priest that was there and installed another priest by the name of Jason. And um, Hellenism was really beginning to become a serious problem among the Israelites, among the Jewish people. And so at one point, there's a rumor going around that Antiochus is has been hurt, or he might be dead. So the people begin a little rebellion, and they kick out the Hellenistic high priest. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes gets word of this, and he goes into Jerusalem and just starts war with everyone that's there. And he, he uh, kills thousands and thousands of Jewish people. He began to enact lots of decrees and laws against the Jewish people. Their Jewish worship was forbidden, no more Sabbath rest, no more circumcision. Kosher laws were prohibited, and he took Torah scrolls and began burning them. And that's just, you see this pattern all through, repeat. This isn't just this guy, but this pattern is repeated many, many times in history. The word of God is always under attack from the adversary. It's that, it's not only just uh, the way of life, it's something about the word of God, the written word of God, the Torah, that drives the adversary crazy. The psalmist says, teach me Adonai the way of your laws. Keeping them will be its own reward for me. There's so much in the book of Psalms about Torah and the importance of it. And that's why the adversary goes after it. I love the way the book of Psalms even opens up. Psalm number one begins with a Torah. Psalm number one, verse one, how blessed are those who reject the advice of the wicked, don't stand on the way of sinners or sit where scoffers sit. They delight, their delight is in Adonai's Torah. On his Torah they meditate day and night. So the psalmist's words are full of the importance and the beauty of Torah. So of course, when persecution comes, certainly, uh, the Torah is going to be, and the word of God in general is going to be in the crosshairs. But there was a rebellion brewing by a guy, a Jewish guy named Judah Maccabee, of course, and the Maccabees waged guerrilla warfare against the Greeks, and they were very successful. They entered the temple and cleared it of all the idols that were placed there by uh, the Greeks, and Judah and his followers built a new altar, which he dedicated on the 25th of the month of Kislev in the year 164, give or take, depending on whose tradition you're listening to. And tradition says that since the golden menorah had been stolen, they, they made a new one, and when they wanted to light it, they only had a small portion of the uh, olive oil bearing the seal of the high priest. So they had enough for one night. The miracle is it lasted for eight nights until they were able to press and sift enough olive oil to keep it going. And that miracle proved that God had taken his people under his protection once again. And so that's where we get the eight days of 
lighting the menorah. So much like Ezra and Nehemiah did centuries earlier, the Maccabees continued to honor the house of Adonai, and they preserved the people and the faith from which would come Messiah Yeshua, of course. All believers in Yeshua, even brothers and sisters in the church, should honor and appreciate Hanukkah because it remembers this, the spirited effort, the spirit-inspired effort of the Ezra's of their day and the Nehemiah's of their day, and then the Maccabees were just following in, in step. They were preserving the faith, they were preserving the people, preserving the Torah, and they preserved a path for Messiah, which was, of course, one of the greatest things they ever could have done. And the lessons we learned from the story are eerily applicable today. We are all being subjected to Hellenization all over again. We just call it something else. We call it being secular or we call it being of the world. But the world today is continuing the work of Antiochus. <clears throat> the Bible is under attack, of course. Religious freedoms seem to be eroding away under the guise of diversity and inclusion. Diversity is fine, of course, unless you kind of have a biblical lifestyle and suddenly it's not so tolerated. But we need, remain, we need to remain dedicated ourselves, faithful and dedicated tapping into the zealousness that drove people like Ezra and that drove people like the Maccabees to want to protect the sanctity of the temple and of the Torah. Hanukkah should be a reminder for everyone that we need to stand firm in this world and remain dedicated in our faith, resist the influences of the world, but be influencers in the world. That's what it means to be a light. 1 Peter 2.9, I'll close with this verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, the king's koanim, the king's priests, the holy nation, a people for God to possess. Why? In order for you to declare the praises of the one who called you. Who are you declaring these praises to? You're declaring these praises to the world. Who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. May Adonai draw all of us near him into the light and help us be a light to others that they may draw near him also. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Hanukkah Smeach.